I don't want to be too hurried, but I was not actually telling the fib a second ago. I have about eight pages of notes, and uh, it's a subject I don't want to break up, and I think the Lord has allowed, allowed me to have this ready uh, as our brother Rocky is going to be baptized. We're going to talk about the baptism of Jesus Christ. Uh, so I hope it will give light as we discuss the scriptures together. Uh, we are finishing here in an almost hurried description of Mark, um, the introduction. The introduction goes all the way uh, through the very first eight verses, but we, we've, in, we've talked about all those things, about the greater ministry of Christ than John the Baptist, comparatively speaking. But... This reminds us of the whole reason that John the Baptist was the introduction of this book, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Was this event? Let's read this event, starting in verse 9. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John the Baptist. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open, and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the reason. Before this, we were just talking about John the Baptist and John the Baptist preaching baptism and doing baptism because one was coming. Now the one has arrived. So here at the baptism of Christ, we are the reader is going back to the assertion of verse 1. The Son of God has entered the world publicly. The Son of God was made known, and this is His gospel. This is how He is introduced to us, is through the waters of baptism. The baptism of Christ is not only revealed Christ to this world, but it presents the reader with a microcosm, and I hope to show that today, the microcosm of the gospel itself. This is the beginning of the gospel of the Son of God. How else do you begin the gospel of the Son of God but with baptism and the picture that it shows. And it's this tiny microcosm, the, the drawing the reader back again to the assertion of verse 1. The point of starting with John is to tell about this event. In fact, this is one of a bit, one of the one of the handful of events that you will find in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So it, it is important. It shows the full initiative of the fullness of God toward sinners. It is the Gospel presented, patterned in all of its, 
and I want to throw a theological term at you, monergistic glory. What does monergistic mean? Well, consider the gospel. When you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says, what is the gospel? And it says, this is the gospel. Christ died for our sins, was buried according to the scriptures, was, was raised again according to the scriptures, and was seen. There is nothing about, there is nothing about what you do or need to do. It's about what he did. And here we see that in a microcosm. It's about what God did. God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. All one God working salvation for sinners. And that is the picture of baptism, by the way. He saved me. How? By what He did. Not by what I did, but by what God did on my behalf. All three persons of the Trinity are seen. And I can agree with our Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox brothers who would, would zero in on the Trinity working our salvation. Here it is. And we can go forward. The Trinity saved us. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit saved us. All three working in perfect unity around the man Christ Jesus in the stead of sinners, who by, who by justice we should have been rejected, but we are accepted in Him. I want to bring these truths out here in the next few minutes. To look at the baptism of Christ in this light draws us away from the, from the myriads of false ideas about water baptism. This text was not meant to teach us that Christ was honoring the ministry of John the Baptist, but he did. Or that he was sanctifying the ordinance of baptism, though he did. And in fact, he sanctified it by continuing to baptize believers after this point and by commanding in the, in the, in the Great Commission for us to always baptize believers. So he did sanctify the ordinance, but it's not necessarily what this is meant to teach. It was not even to sanctify the ministry of Christ. Though it marked his beginning of, of his public ministry, it tells us the heart of what was meant by Christ when he came to John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, John the Baptist says, I have a need to be baptized of you. And we're going to go back to that comment here in a second. But he said, it behooves us to fulfill all righteousness. And that was the reason he gave for being baptized in Matthew 3.15. It allows this event to stand in harmony with the whole of the gospel. All righteousness. The righteousness of God revealed from heaven, Romans chapter 3. It stands in harmony with the whole of the gospel teaching and is not an isolated or fragmentary uh, event in its utility. So as much as we want to learn about baptism here, there is a specific focus that is meant. And it's not on what we need to do or what we need to value Surely there is something of that here. 
we should hold baptism in high regard. We do. That's why we baptize today. But, if, but what is Christ doing? Christ identified himself in a certain way here. He identified with repenting sinners in water baptism. And we ought to freely identify with Christ in the same thing. But that cannot be the chief end of what is being done here in this text. This is about what Christ did as our representative and points toward a greater end on the cross for us. Thus, Mark identifies this as the beginning of the gospel. And it says in our reading here, I want to bring three things out of here, and I don't want to belabor the point. Like I said, I have a lot of notes, but I am going to skip them. (laughs) Uh, Some that I think may be frivolous or at least contrary to our point today. There's three things if you want an outline. Three simple truths that are accessible to the reader of Mark. Christ came, Christ stooped, and God exalted him. Very simple message. Christ came, Christ stooped, and God exalted him. We can almost see in this small microcosm the whole of his ministry. Philippians chapter 2. He who is in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and became obedient even to the death of the cross. And God hath highly exalted him and gave him a name above every name. That's what we're seeing here. Christ came, Christ stooped, And God exalted him. So first, let's talk about these three points in that order. First, Christ came, verse 9. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. This again was the point of the very first eight verses. We're looking for one that's coming. We're looking for one that's coming. And Christ came. All right, the very simple point here, this happened in the context of John's ministry and the reader would have already been anticipating this as they were reading this gospel in the very first eight verses. And then here it is. Here's Jesus. He came with expectancy, or as the gospel itself says, according to the scriptures. Uh, Mark is bringing that truth out, just, just driving that truth home. According to the scriptures, he came. John was expecting this in. I want to go ahead and read, and for sake of time, uh, you don't have to turn there, but John chapter 1 in verse 25 through 27, they asked him, why do you baptize? If if you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not that prophet, John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. And when Christ finally came in John chapter 1, verse 29 through 31, John says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, 
After me cometh a man that which is preferred before me, for he was before me, and I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing. Why did he come baptizing? For this moment. And Jesus came. The Apostle John summarized as the testimony of John the Baptist in John 1, 32 through 34. John bare record saying, so this is what John says. I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode on him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. You know when we read the baptism account, we're reading the testimony of John the Baptist. This is what John saw. This is what he bare witness to. This is the meat of the message. Behold the Lamb of God. Baptism marked out Christ, the one coming, the Son of God. As Mark, in agreement with the Apostle John, declares, Christ came and this was the declaration of who he was and what he came to do. Note how this coming is couched in terms of real history. We have not followed fables. He came in time, in those days. Paul would say he came in the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4. In the same sequence of events that make up our life experiences, this happened. He came. This is real history we're reading. Jesus came. You people and some people in uh, in various intellectual circles can sit around and talk about, well, we're not even sure Jesus of Nazareth was a real person. No, he came in actual time, in actual places on the map. He came from Nazareth of Galilee. He came from some backwater little podunk town. <laughs> Amen. But it's real. He was a a worker there. He he was a carpenter. He was known. He was called a Nazarene, which basically means a hick. (laughs) What did Nathaniel say? He says, can anything good come from Nazareth? And then Matthew says, he shall be called a Nazarene. Uh, One one would think that great people would come from great places, uh, not from small villages in, lake re- in the lake regions. Luke tells us that he was about 30 years old at that time, Luke 3.23. But he came, real time, real space, real history we're talking about here. It's not, it's, it's, it's not a fable. This is truth. He came in obscurity. Knowing only in other Gospels that he was born, fled to Egypt as a, ch- as a child, settled in Nazareth, debated wisely with, with lawyers in the temple at the age of 12, grew up obedient to his family, and worked with his hands. Other than that, we don't know anything about his first 30 years. But here he came. He came for a, to a people that were already gathered together waiting for him. 
He came and he stooped. John said that the baptism was something that he had need of. Why did John have need of it in, John, uh, in Matthew 3.14? Why did John feel like he had need of baptism? Because he was a sinner too. I've got need. You're coming to me to be baptized? I'm the needy one, not you. I'm the sinner. Who was getting baptized? Sinners. What were they doing in order to be baptized? Repenting. You see, you see the force of what's happening here. It, it's obvious to the reader in context what, what, what is happening. Christ is stooping. Christ, at the very least, appears here as the needy. When it says he was baptized of John in Jordan. To the Jewish readers, which were not the target audience of Mark, we see a connection maybe with the priestly washing and services on behalf of the people, which, which followed by the anointing of oil here being the spirit prior to making the sacrifices, Leviticus chapter 8. We see those points, but Mark's not making that point here. His reader is not a Jewish reader that would not have necessarily followed any kind of connection with Leviticus chapter 8. Behold here the stooping Son of God. Who was John baptizing? Like I said, he was baptizing sinners who were repenting and in need of baptism. I don't think anybody could read the book of Mark and walk away and say, well, you know what? Jesus probably need to be, needed to be baptized. No. Christ was not a sinner. He had no need of repentance. He was already pure, had no need of washing, and yet he was baptized. In Jordan, which by the way, Jordan was not necessarily a clean river. If Naaman said that, he says there's far better rivers for me to go wash in than the Jordan but he represented the sinner. Standing in the stead of the sinner, he went into the water. Standing in the stead of the repenting people, he went into the water and says, this is what's needed to fulfill all righteousness. I don't understand when I'm reading uh, commentaries and notes of, men, uh, of, of various uh, theologians and they're talking about all these odd things about the baptism and they're not zeroing in on this one truth. He wasn't a sinner and he was doing what sinners did. Like I said, who was it that went into the Jordan to dip seven times? A leper. Jesus was no leper. There was three people that crossed the, there were three crossings of the Jordan in, in, uh, in the Old Testament. May not have had any significance to the, the Roman reader of Mark, but Moses went, brought the people across, or Joshua brought the people across it to enter the promised land. Uh, Elijah went through it to be received of God, and Elisha went through it 
uh, to do a greater work than Elijah. We can, we can, th- these are all peripheral meanings of the text, but the clear intent is just simply he wasn't a sinner and he went in. The Son of God went into the water, though he himself was not a sinner. That's why I had to look all over for, for just people acknowledging this one simple truth. Ellicott said this in his, that it seemed to place him in fellowship with sinners. No, it did place him in fellowship with sinners. No greater act of stooping could better signify the wholeness and the fullness of the gospel than what Jesus did here. He came, he stooped, and finally, I'm doing pretty good on time, though I got several pages of notes on this last point, so we'll see what happens. He came, he stooped, and then God exalted him. This is what makes the ministry of Christ good news. Straightway, coming up out of the water, he saw. Gives us clear indication of eyewitness testimony. Who saw and heard this? Is not necessarily brought out in Mark's account. But comparing the other gospel accounts, it is clearly seen that John is the one that saw this and witnessed this and became his public testimony from this point. John bore witness of Christ and not Christ himself. Uh, uh, One of the things you have to realize when you're comparing Scripture with Scripture, this account is told in all four Gospels, and at some points it will say, you are my son, thou art my, you're my son. And then in, in another account it will say, this is my son. Is that a contradiction? No, that's just John retelling it in the third person. All right, so, so the actual words are, you are my son. John's witness of it, God said, this is my son. So don't, so don't when, when you're doing the, kind of this inner, inner uh, gospel uh, comparison, realize that not all of it's told from the same perspective. The Apostle John cleared this up. He says in John 1, we just read this, John bare record saying, I saw the Spirit descending like a dove, and it abode on him. And God says, upon whom you see this happening, that's the one coming. So John's the witness here. He's the one that saw this. He would go on to declare that Christ received his ministry from heaven. John chapter 3 uh, I, want, I want to go ahead and read this. This is John the Baptist speaking again. John chapter 3 and verse 26. Uh, and they came to John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was beyond the Jordan, to whom you, you bear, thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizes. And all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. What's he talking about? What he saw here. And he says, You yourself bear witness, bear me witness that I said I am not Christ, but I am sent before him. He that has the bride is the bridegroom. This is John's testimony. The universally known content is sure. No one was going around like I said before. You know, John the Baptist never said these things. 
And even in the book of Acts, they're constantly revoking John the Baptist, saying, John bore witness. Jesus said, John bore witness of me. And it was an important stone. In John chapter 5, verse 31, you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light, and he bore record of me. And no one of the Pharisees says, no, that's not what John the Baptist was. John the Baptist was just bringing him forth this. No, this is John's record. What did John the Baptist see and hear that convinced him that this is the Christ? This is the Lamb. This is the Son. This is not just another sinner coming in and out of the water, but immediately when Christ was baptized, John saw the heavens open. Or as he said in John 3, he received this from heaven. Amen? He saw the heavens open. Matthew added the words, unto him. To the reader, the fact that heavens open has an obvious meaning of the heavenly response to what was done. But do you know what the actual word here in Mark is different than the word that is used in the other? He says there was a schism. There was a brick, yeah, a schism, a tearing apart that happened. And it reveals the awesome display that John was seeing. The next time the word is used by Mark is in Mark 15, 38, where he says the veil of the temple was schizo, schismed in two from top to bottom the way of the way to God being made because he's the new and living way there's an obvious foreshadowing of the events of the death of Christ here which means that the scene of the baptism of Christ as the picture of the gospel completed on behalf of sinners is even a more sound conclusion and we see even a reference here to Psalm Psalm 24 where he says, open up the gates and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Open up ye gates, ye, ever, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. The way, the truth, and the life was revealed. Matthew and Luke used the normal word for opening in the text, but Mark was bold here. He says, it was a schism that we were looking at. And the heaven's opening was a means to that end. The end of God responding. God responded to what he was done in Trinitarian fashion. Christ, the Son, was coming up out of the water. The Spirit rested upon him, and the Father declared his pleasure in him. There's the response. Look at these just real quick, and I want to... I want to hurry. <clears throat> the spirit, like a dove, descended on him. No doubt, this is introducing Trinitarian theology to Roman readers. See, the, the Trinity was not invented in 313 B.C. at the Council of Nicaea. What? 80. Yeah, 80. Sorry. I get my, my left from my right mixed up. It's what was declared in the scriptures. I think we need to 
remember that. Uh, it's, this is what they declared. It's, it's very simple. There's one God, Yahweh. There are three persons in the Bible that are called Yahweh. The Father, Son, and Spirit. Or kurios in the Greek that always answered to Yahweh in the Old Testament. Those three people are distinct one from another. The Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Spirit. The Father is not the Spirit. The Father sent the Son. The Son was sent by the Father. The, the Spirit was sent by the Father and the Son, so on and so forth. The Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Father. The, uh, so on and so forth. They're distinct persons. That's why we believe in the Trinity. Amen? Not because we... I'm not, getting, I'm not getting into all kinds of philosophy and everything. There's one God. We are monotheistic. There's three persons. And no doubt this was entering, in, entering into the language here. The language is less exact than it is elsewhere. Matthew said the Spirit of God. Luke called him the Holy Ghost. Here it is just the Spirit but even without the adjectives, the reader no doubt had understanding of the nature of the Spirit. Some have drawn a parallel between Noah sending forth the dove of the ark that rested again on Noah when it can find no clean place to land. Whether or not that's being invoked here is not known. Is the dove a symbol of peace? Yes, the dove is a symbol of peace. It may be well met here. What I can say for sure is that it represented the power of God. The Holy Ghost coming down on the church was the power of God resting upon us. And if it would have never rested on Him, it would have never rested on us. Christ said that the Spirit of God was Him working. The power of God, the finger of God was upon Him, and therefore He cast out demons. From this point forward, Christ is led of the Spirit the Spirit does his mighty, does mighty works through the Spirit. And here the Spirit in bodily shape manifests himself, clearly meaning that the kingdom of God. But what else is in the context? He says, there's coming one that's going to baptize you with the Spirit. Here's the Spirit descending upon him. The king was so forever anointed, the king of glory. John stated in John that we've already read, John 1, 32 and 33, it abode upon him and remained on him. The Spirit communicated without words, and this was the Son of God. This was the King of glory, and the grace would not depart from him. The Spirit would continue to bear witness to those who are of Christ, and it still bears witness today. It hasn't departed from Christ yet. It's still here among us. It is Christ and not water that had His Spirit responding. It was the Messiah that would forever reign, that it was said was to be anointed with the oil of gladness above His fellows. It was the Spirit of God which Christ would later cite in Luke 4 when, he, when He's going he's to go to the synagogue and He would say, the Spirit of God. God rest upon me, quoting from Isaiah 61. The voice of the turtle dove here announcing the spring, Song of Solomon 2.12, and now broods over the waters of a new creation, Genesis 
I'm going to pass this because it's pretty mysterious to me. <laughs> I'm just trying to give you a few hints about the Spirit descending like a dove. But He's the one that baptizes us in the Spirit. And He has the Spirit without measure upon Him here. What I want to draw in the next two or three minutes, and then I'll be done, is the words of Christ. There came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Trinity is, bought, is fully brought forth. The Son on earth, the Spirit from he- coming from heaven, and the Father glorifying and accepting His Son in all that He has done. This is all our salvation right here. This is all of our salvation in these unified persons working our salvation together. No wonder why John can proclaim the full salvation of Christ after this vision. There is, you know, this is one of three occasions that the Father spoke from heaven. The other two, the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark chapter 9, where he says, this is my beloved son, hear him. And John 12, 28, just prior to the crucifixion, where he says, I have glorified you and will yet glorify you. The messages were similar in nature and purpose and were all pointing towards a greater end. I could pontificate a little bit about the words. We could say that one marked him as our priest, the baptism, the other as our prophet, the transfiguration, hear him. And the other is our king, prior to the resurrection, I will glorify. That, however, is all just conjecture on my part. While this is later retold in the third person, like I said, this is my son versus you are my son. The words were, you are my son. And what John was witnessing was peeking into this intimate relationship of father and son. We don't know if anyone else was present or heard it. But John, but the witness of it was so important that it not only here in Mark, but in Matthew, and also in Luke, and again in John. It's one of few scenes that are in all four. He clearly marked the Messiah out for the film fulfillment. Consider what was said in Isaiah 42, 1 through 3. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. Sounds exactly what happened at the baptism there. It was for the sake of John's listening ears that the voice came. Christ did not need to know this. We did. Divine sonship is the first is first declared by the Father, Psalm 2. This is my son. God declares the sonship in the face of the entire before the entire world in Psalm 2. The Father does, declares that this is His anointed, this is His Son. The shadow of Abraham and Isaac looms here 
He's the son, the beloved. Abraham, take your beloved son and go to the place I've appointed and lay him down there. Abraham was able to spare his son. When God says, this is my beloved son, it says in Romans 8.32, he spared him not. And this is the source of our acceptance right here. This is my beloved son. I'm pleased in him. See, us sinners, I can repent all day and all night, but if there was no provision made for me, I can get baptized in every creek and every pond hundred times over. But if there is no provision for me, I can never be accepted of God. But here is the Son. And God says, this is what I'm pleased with. And then we get to Paul's declaration in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. We are accepted. Where? In the beloved. This is my beloved son. And I'm not going to spare him. And I'm pleased in him. And the only way you can be pleased is in him too. That's the great truths that you and I are reading here. This is the visible depiction of the fullness of the gospel itself. The entirety of the Trinity saving sinners through the man, Christ Jesus. Christ would later say in Luke chapter 12 and verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with. He wasn't talking about what he did with John. He was talking about what he was going to do on the cross. And while no one who who knew John, who knew John's baptism, ever when they got baptized understood this, the early disciples when they were baptized didn't understand it. But you and I understand it now. What are we picturing except for this very truth? He came, he stooped, and God exalted him. And our salvation is found there and in no other place. I hope you receive something from the word of God today. And now we'll prepare the baptism.